Hi, I'm Pete Anderson, and welcome to today's reading of USA Today for Friday, March 1st, 2024. The first story we're going to take a look at today, Secretary Austin faces hard questions on Capitol Hill. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, in his first congressional hearing since his health crisis related to prostate cancer, faced blistering criticism on Thursday for failing to notify lawmakers, the White House, and the American public about his hospitalization last month. Our adversaries should fear us, and you have embarrassed us, said Representative Jim Banks, a Republican from Indiana, as he scolded Austin at a House Armed Services Committee hearing. An ambulance sped Austin, age 70, to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center on New Year's Day, but he attempted to conceal that he had been admitted to the hospital's critical care unit. Austin's three-day delay in informing his boss, President Joe Biden, and other authorities had drawn bipartisan criticism and internal reviews at the Pentagon. Austin reiterated to Congress on Thursday that he had taken responsibility for poor communication and has apologized for not being fully transparent about his hospitalization. Lawmakers, though, said more accountability is needed. We did not handle this right, Austin said. I did not handle this right. Truck drivers and bartenders have to tell their bosses when they miss work, Representative Mike Waltz, a Republican from Florida, told Austin. This is about judgment and poor judgment, Walt said. Austin deflected a barrage of questions about whether Biden is out of the loop on key national security issues. The president is not aloof, he said. But Austin's critics said that was not enough. Who will be held responsible for this, Banks demanded. Are you surprised he did not call for your resignation? Representative Mike Rogers, a Republican from Alabama who chairs the Armed Services Committee, blasted Austin for failing to notify the White House of his hospitalization while wars raged in the Middle East and U.S. troops face attacks from Iranian-backed militias. It's totally unacceptable, Rogers said. The chain of command, starting with Biden, doesn't work when the commander-in-chief doesn't know who to call, Rogers said. Austin has acknowledged significant lapses in communication, and he repeated those when faced his critics in Congress. We did have a breakdown in notification during my January stay at Walter Reed, Austin said. That is, sharing my location and why I was there. And back in December, I should have promptly notified the president, my team, Congress, and the American people about my cancer diagnosis and subsequent treatment. Austin stressed that he or his deputy defense secretary, Catherine Hicks, to whom he transferred authority in January, maintained control of the military, which includes its two million troops and nuclear forces. There was never any lapse in authorities or in command and control, Austin said. A Republican report on the matter issued on Monday did not recommend that anybody be disciplined, finding that there was no ill intent or obfuscation in delaying notification of Austin's incapacitation. It did endorse formal procedures adopted by the Pentagon to notify the White House, Congress, and senior military officials immediately when the defense secretary transfers his or her authority. The review did not satisfy Rogers. Unsurprisingly, the review of Secretary Austin's actions, conducted by his own subordinates and subject to his approval, held no one accountable. He wrote this week on X, formerly Twitter. This is why we are conducting our own investigation. We will seek answers at our hearing with Secretary Austin on Thursday. 
Austin and his staff sought to downplay his illness and hospitalization from its early days. He had been diagnosed with prostate cancer in early December and had surgery on December 22nd. A staffer asked emergency medical personnel not to use sirens and lights when the ambulance picked him up at his home, according to a recording of the 911 call. Turning now to our next story from USA Today, it's titled, Biden is Healthy, Robust, His Doctor Says. This is subtitled, Says President, Age 81, Remains Fit to Serve. President Joe Biden has responding well to the treatment he has been receiving for sleep apnea, his doctor said, after his annual routine physical on Wednesday at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. All his other medical considerations remain stable and well-controlled, the doctor's report concluded. President Biden is a healthy, active, robust 81-year-old male who remains fit to successfully execute the duties of the presidency, according to the report. The report also notes the president's gait remains stiff but has not worsened since last year. X-rays revealed mild arthritic changes that have contributed to his stiffened gait, said Dr. Kevin C. O'Connor, the president's physician. He concluded, however, that no treatment was warranted other than physical therapy. A written summary of the results of his physical was published by the White House. Last February, a skin lesion was removed from Biden's chest, known as basal cell carcinoma, a common form of skin cancer. His doctor said then there was no further treatment required. At age 81, Biden is the oldest sitting president, and a myriad of polls have shown that it is a significant concern for voters heading into the 2024 presidential election. Last month, a group of House Republicans wrote to Biden demanding that he take a cognitive test to prove his mental fitness for office after Robert Hur's special counsel investigation on Biden's handling of classified information portrayed Biden as an elderly man with diminished capacities, including memory loss. Asked at the White House news briefing later in the day whether the president had undergone a cognitive test, Corrine Jean-Pierre, the president's press secretary, said he had not. The president doesn't need a cognitive test, she said. She said that wasn't only her assessment, but it was the assessment of a neurologist, adding that Biden passes a cognitive test every day. We have to keep that in mind that this is a very rigorous job, she said. The White House said earlier this month that the president would not take a cognitive test as part of his physical. Sleep apnea is a common disorder in which breathing is interrupted repeatedly during sleep. The American Medical Association estimates that about 30 million people in the United States have sleep apnea, but only 6 million have been diagnosed with the condition. Common symptoms include loud snoring, episodes in which one stops breathing during sleep, gasping for air during sleep, and fatigue even after a full night's rest. Biden was asked on Monday about his age by comedian Seth Meyers on Late Night with Seth Meyers on NBC Late Monday Night. Biden pointed to his presidential rival in the 2024 presidential election, former President Donald Trump, who is age 77. Look at the other guy. He's about as old as I am, but he can't remember his wife's name, he joked, before striking a more serious note. It's about how old your ideas are. Look, I mean, this is a guy who wants to take us back. He wants to take us back on Roe versus Wade. He wants to take us back on a whole range of issues that are 50 or 60 years old.
Turning now to our next story from USA Today, McConnell's decision sparks talk of when is the best time to retire. Mitch McConnell announced on Wednesday that he would step down for his role as the Senate Republican leader in November. The 82-year-old from Kentucky told his Senate colleagues, one of life's most underappreciated talents is know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. So how does one determine when to downshift or retire from their career to relinquish the car keys or to move to a condo so someone else can do the lawn and shovel the snow? Especially if finances are not a factor, and for many people, income and health are the two biggest determinants for retirement. The decision depends on someone's values, how they see the future, and how they want to be remembered, experts say. It can also depend on how well prepared they are for retirement, how productive they and their peers feel they are, and what kind of work they do. When we see our future as a horizon and that is shortening, our goals shift away from money, power, accomplishments, and influence. We focus more on emotions, on legacy, on not wanting time on things that might rob us of our emotional well-being, said Dawn Carr, an expert in late-life productivity, social engagement, and wellness. She compared McConnell to someone who was in many ways his ideological opposite, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Supreme Court Justice who long resisted calls for her to retire and died in 2020 at the age of 87 while still on the Supreme Court bench. If you know your time is short, you might feel more urgency and you might want to leave a legacy. If our jobs are giving us emotional satisfaction, we're less likely to step away and more likely to dig in, said Carr, a sociology professor at Florida State University and director of the school's Claude Pepper Center. That might describe an entire generation of America's political leadership, including Senator Dianne Feinstein, a Democrat from California who died in office last year at the age of 90 after several years of ill health. President Joe Biden is running for re-election at age 81 against former President Donald Trump, age 77. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat from New York, is 73. Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat from California, the former Speaker of the House of Representatives who remains in Congress, is a decade his senior. Our sense of leaving a legacy is about what we think the world needs going ahead, said Carr, speaking generally. I would bet many politicians in the United States right now have really particular feelings about the future, and those feelings don't align. So they dig in because you believe you have to protect the country and its future. And just because someone, including an elected official, slows down doesn't mean they're incompetent or experiencing cognitive decline, said Dr. Amit Shah, a geriatrician at the Mayo Clinic. Americans of all professions are working until later ages. As people get set to retire, Shah recommends a gradual, phased approach as opposed to the old stereotype of trading the office for the golf range, which could get boring fast for some people used to an active life. Reduced work hours or transitioning to mentorship roles can be fulfilling, particularly for people who have held leadership positions, such as a CEO or a lawmaker, he said. Part of that succession plan should be phasing yourself out and bringing in a new person, Shaw said. It goes 
much better oftentimes if you're able to guide, but you have to be willing to let go also. Turning now to our next story from USA Today, Smokehouse Blaze Burns 1 Million Acres. This story is subtitled, One of 130 Fires is Largest in the History of Texas. Wildfires across the Texas Panhandle forced widespread evacuations on Thursday and caused one death as one of the blazes grew into the largest in the state's history. As of 30, 130 fires were burning across the state, according to the Texas A&M Fire Service. The largest of them, the Smokehouse Creek Fire, had consumed 1 million acres, an area larger than the state of Rhode Island, and was just 3% contained. The already massive inferno grew when the 687 Reamer Fire fed into it after consuming an additional 2,000 acres. This is now the largest fire in recorded Texas history, Aaron O'Connor, lead public information officer for the Forest Service, said on Thursday. The fire's acreage indicated land within the burn zone, she said. Meanwhile, the Windy Deuce fire had burned across at least 142,000 acres and was 30% contained as of late Wednesday. The Grapevine Creek Fire was almost two-thirds contained after it blazed through 30,000 acres. The Magneta Fire had burned through an additional 2,500 acres. O'Connor said only one death has been officially attributed to the fire. Joyce Blankenship, age 83, of the small town of Stinnett, the number of structures that have been damaged or destroyed isn't yet known, though teams were investigating, O'Connor said. Fire activity was minimal on Thursday in part because winds have died down, O'Connor said. Some precipitation was forecast, which could help things start to green up and could slow the fire down, she added. Our firefighters should be able to make good progress and increase containment over the next couple of days, O'Connor said. Texas Governor Greg Abbott directed the Texas Division of Emergency Management to increase its response readiness on Wednesday after he issued a disaster declaration for 60 counties in Texas the day before. On Monday, the National Weather Service had forecast wind gusts of up to 60 miles an hour. As if that wasn't enough, we've also had record warm temperatures this morning and afternoon with the opportunity to break another warm weather temperature record overnight, the Weather Service said. Those strong winds combined with a dry environment fueled by unseasonably high temperature allowed the fire to rapidly spread after it sparked on Monday. On Tuesday, the fires forced the evacuation of a nuclear weapons plant northeast of Amarillo, and the plant was shut down that evening. The plant resumed normal operations on Wednesday. According to a report last year by the Texas State Climatologist, wildfire risk in the state is projected to rise because of increased rates of drying and the increased fuel load. Texas typically has two fire seasons, one in the winter and another in the summer, according to the Western Fire Chiefs Association. The winter fire season runs February through April and is sometimes called the dormant fire season. Those fires can spread as cold fronts bring high winds into the state, which puts winter dry grasses and vegetation at risk. Most of the state's largest wildfires occur in this season. The summer wildfire season comes in August through October when the high heat and dry conditions can spark conflagrations. 
Those fires are especially bad in years, with wet falls and winters followed by summer droughts. The intense rains create larger-than-usual volumes of scrub grass and brush growth that dry them out. That was the case of the Bastrop Fire in 2011, the most destructive in the Lone Star State's history. It killed two people, burned more than 32,000 acres, and destroyed more than 1,500 homes. Before the Smokehouse Creek Fire took the title, the largest fire in Texas state history was the East Amarillo Complex Fire. The fire ignited in Hutchinson County on March 12, 2006, and blazed through more 907,000 acres, according to the Texas A&M Forest Service. It also killed 13 people, which made it the deadliest fire in the state's history. Historically, slightly more than 1% of the state's land has burned each decade since 1984. Climate models project that to increase as soil and vegetation becomes drier by the year 2100. In the Texas Panhandle, where the Smokehouse Creek Fire and others were burning, that land is flat, grassy, and brush-filled, giving any fires that do start ample fuel to burn. The next story from the USA Today, stratosphere dehydration would slow climate change. It may sound like a plot of an old James Bond movie, but an idea to dehydrate the stratosphere to slow climate change is real. In a study released on Wednesday in Science Advances, researchers propose a controversial geoengineering strategy to reduce global warming, one that involves dehydrating the stratosphere by removing water vapor, the most abundant greenhouse gas. Indeed, although greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and methane are the most important drivers of human-caused climate change, water vapor remains the most common greenhouse gas. Removing it from the atmosphere would help mitigate climate change, a study says. In the study by researchers from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, scientists suggested drying what they call intentional stratospheric dehydration. According to a study by author Joshua Schwartz, a research physicist at NOAA's Chemical Science Laboratory in Boulder, Colorado, the concept would involve seeding small particles known as ice nuclei into the stratosphere using high-altitude aircraft. If those seeds can be introduced into the stratosphere, he said, some of the water vapor would condense into ice and fall, thereby removing excess water vapor and dehydrating at least partially the stratosphere. The study suggests this strategy could plausibly work after overcoming several technical barriers. Schwartz said that right now we don't have a plan or the technology to do this. No, Schwartz said, adding that it would only cool the atmosphere one-seventieth as much as CO2 is warming it. It would only be a very small shift in the other direction. He said that CO2 remains a huge problem in Earth's atmosphere and that this method would only have a small impact compared to that of CO2. I have to be very skeptical, said Kevin Trenberth, a scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Focusing on dehumidifying the stratosphere by itself makes no sense to me. Michael Mann, a meteorologist at the University of Pennsylvania, said that in this case, the authors concede a large number of caveats, one of the most critical being the potential limited lifetime of the effect. 
Like many of the proposed inventions, it would have to be done regularly to keep up this offering cooling effect. In the meantime, the CO2 that is accumulating in the atmosphere is there for the long term. The idea behind the geoengineering is to manipulate some of the parts of the Earth's system to keep the global warming under control, while also acknowledging that the ideal solution remains a reduction in the emissions of greenhouse gases. Geoengineering technologies are still being developed, and no large-scale experiments or operations have been done, researchers said. Still, it remains a controversial topic. The ethical questions associated with climate manipulation loom so large that some forms of geoengineering are simply unacceptable, Trumwith wrote in a letter to the journal Physics Today. Said man, these sorts of geoengineering gambits could easily become like climate methadone. We become reliant on doing them, and if the will or the infrastructure for implementing this ever fails, then any climate benefit is lost while the CO2 continues to accumulate. Our next story from USA Today comes from the sports page. It's titled Clark versus Pistol Pete Comparisons Illogical. If women's basketball fans and advocates are honest about why the Caitlin Clark phenomenon is breaking through in a way that superstars in previous eras of their sport have not, they need to acknowledge an indelicate but crucial factor in her popularity. While grievance is a popular tool in sports and has long been necessary to advance equality and create opportunity for women, Clark has never presented herself as the face of a larger cause. Part of her appeal to the fans who have either ignored or mocked women's basketball in the past, mostly men of course, is that they aren't being shamed to pay attention. Her charisma and style stand on their own. And as this weekend approaches, where the narrative around Clark will now turn to the 3,667-point mark that has forever been associated with Pete Maravich, that's exactly where her achievement should remain on their own. But for a variety of reasons, the obsession with women's college basketball hasn't trickled over to the WNBA. About to enter its 28th season, the W is widely considered the toughest league to last in, given that there are just 144 roster spots. Every time a new convert has breathlessly told me about how they can't get enough of women's basketball now that they've found Clark, my response has always been the same. Do you watch the W? Because let me tell you that if you think Clark is good, you should watch Asia Wilson. She's the best player in the world at both ends of the floor. This is not to take anything away from Clark, whose game I love. She's a generational talent who's elevated the sport. She understands that with her game, she's lifting all of women's basketball. This is clear whenever she talks to the media. She has earned every on-court accolade She's been awarded. I can't wait to see what she does in the league and beyond. And yes, I do think she should make the Olympic team. But in a popularity contest, context matters. And an undeniable piece of Clark's popularity is that she's white. Throughout the years, numerous studies have been published pointing to data that shows white women, particularly straight white women, command more marketing and sponsorship dollars than women of color they get more media attention, too. Turning now to some of the news highlights around the area. From Connecticut, in Norwich, a seamstress shop 
located in downtown Norwich, is a dream come true for a local business owner. A ribbon cutting was held recently, sponsored by the Greater Norwich Chamber of Commerce. From Massachusetts in Boston, Governor Maura Healey's Public Safety Agency released a legislatively mandated traffic citation study that found black and Hispanic drivers were more likely than white drivers to be criminally charged, arrested, and searched statewide in 2021 and 2022. Looking at Rhode Island from Providence. At any fishing spot along Rhode Island's coast, you're likely to encounter a remarkably diverse array of people, including immigrants from countries like Cambodia, Laos, the Dominican Republic, and Guatemala. But their perspectives are often missing from discussions about coastal access, according to Melva Pena, an assistant professor at the University of Rhode Island's College of Environmental and Life Sciences, who has extensively studied the importance of fishing in Rhode Island's immigrant communities. Now, with funding from Rhode Island Sea Grant, she's researching the barriers that stand in the way. From Vermont, in Burlington, Vermont rocker Grace Potter is reviving the concept of her long-running Grand Point North Festival with two nights of performances at Waterfront Park in Burlington in what's being called the Grand Point North concert series. Turning to New Hampshire in Portsmouth, the city assessor's office announced that an ongoing reevaluation of all properties in Portsmouth is underway, a process that started on February 5th and will continue for several months. Looking at Maine from Augusta, Mainers are bracing themselves for a big change. The state license plate featuring a chickadee is being replaced by a pine tree, a reference to an old flag from 1901 that's making a popular resurgence, appearing on hats, shirts, and other state apparel. And from Rochester, New York, spring is on its way to Rochester, which means hummingbirds are too. After spending their winters in parts of Central America or Mexico, hummingbirds are now beginning to migrate north, and an interactive map will let you track their journey. Hummingbird Central is going on its 11th year tracking the northward hummingbird migration. Well, that's it for today's reading of USA Today. I've been reading from the Friday, March 1st, 2024 edition. If you have any questions about the articles I've read, call the Chris Listener line at 860-727-9579. I'm Pete Anderson. So long until next time.